So I really wanted early on people to get addicted to generosity, maybe in the same way that they were addicted to debauchery or that I had, that I had enticed them to a decade of debauchery. Could I entice people into compassion? Welcome to Lead with We. I'm your host, Simon Mannering, founder and CEO of We First. Lead with We is the podcast where top business leaders and founders reveal how they built their companies to be high impact and high growth by putting We First. Lead with We is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead With We, where I'm talking to a friend and someone I greatly admire, the founder and CEO of Charity Water, Scott Harrison. And Charity Water is the largest water charity in America and one of the fastest growing charities over the last decade in the country. Scott, welcome to Lead With We. Hey, it's uh, good to chat with you again. I wish this was in person, but uh, you know, the, the times dictate. We, we don't get to catch up that way. I, I know, you know, we will all get together in person, COVID permitting, permitting soon enough. But uh, to achieve impact around an issue so crucial as water at a scale that you've achieved is just incredible in its own right. But at the same time, to be one of the fastest growing charities in the country over the last decade, that's a whole level of competitiveness that, you know, people would deeply like to, you know, would like to deeply understand. Let me ask you, Scott, firstly, give us a snapshot of what Charity Water is and a sense of what's propelled your growth or success over the last, you know, decade and beyond. Sure. We're a nonprofit organization with a very simple and clear mission to bring clean and safe drinking water to every human being alive. And as we record this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in an attic right now in Pennsylvania, uh, unfortunately, 785 million people, so about a tenth of the people living on Earth right now, are drinking dirty, contaminated, unsafe water today that risks their lives, it risks, risks the lives of their loved ones and their kids. We think that 785 million number needs to be zero. So for 14 years, we have been working to uh, raise awareness, to raise money, to really create a global movement of people fighting for clean water, uh, using their gifts, their time and their talent and their money in the service of others with an output of making sure people have clean water to drink. And I've got to say, you know, my respect for you is not just based on admiration for the organization, but you and I got to know each other in the early days when you were crisscrossing from New York to LA, sharing the story, building the foundation of the charity, you know, from from scratch. And I know the, those first early years weren't easy. Like, can you give us a sense of kind of, you know, the hit and misses of those early years? Because sometimes people look back afterwards and they say, wow, it's obviously been an enormous success all the way through, but it wasn't like that. Give us a, give us a window back into that time. Well, you know, a tiny bit of backstory or context. Um, there are kind of three chapters of my personal life. Uh, I grew up in middle-class New Jersey. Uh, my dad was a business guy. My mom was a writer. And when I was four, there was this terrible tragedy. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our home, and it almost killed all of us. It did irreparably damage my mom and her immune system. And after that leak, she became an invalid. And I, I grew up kind of, you know, chapter one, uh, the good kid, the only child, taking care of a mom, taking her to doctor's visits, doing the cooking and the cleaning for her. 
uh, very active in the church. My parents had a, had a deep and authentic Christian faith that really helped them through this. Phase two of my life was moving to New York City to do the opposite of all that. Uh, have sex with as many people as possible. Uh, drugs, gambling. Uh, I, I became a nightclub promoter. I wanted to be the best nightclub promoter in New York City. And I wanted to try out all of the vices that came with the opposite of the church, the opposite of the rules. Right. And over the next 10 years, you know, from 18 to 28, I worked at 40 different nightclubs and I chased models around the world to fashion weeks in Paris and Milan. And, you know, I, I got the BMW and the Rolex and the grand piano in my New York City apartment and the, the perfect dog and, you know, all these kind of markers of success. And then I woke up one day and I said, well, um, I'm really miserable. This is a terrible way to live life. Uh, drunk and drugged out and in loveless, uh, superficial relationships. And kind of the third chapter of my life was this re-exploration of faith, of spirituality, of morality that led me on a humanitarian mission in post-war Liberia, where I sold everything that I owned. I quit the drinking and the smoking and the drugging and said, I want my life to look exactly the opposite. And it led me to uh, a, a volunteer position as a photojournalist with a group of humanitarian doctors and surgeons going to a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage, no mail, and a country that had only one doctor for 50,000 people living there that had just endured a 14-year civil war. And my life changed, and, and the third act stuck. Uh, I was so uh, overcome with admiration and, and so inspired by the work of these humanitarians that I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And among all of the things that I saw over what turned out to a two-year volunteer stint in West Africa, um, I had lived in leprosy colonies. I'd seen tumors and cleft lips and cleft palates and just all sorts of, of challenges, all sorts of poverty. But I saw people drinking dirty water. And to me, that just lay at the root. Uh, and, and the data said as well that, that the access to clean water lay at the root of so much of the sickness and disease in the world. So um, long story short, that got me to 30 years old, landing back in New York City, completely broke, but with this idea that I could potentially make a difference if I picked an issue to solve. Uh, and I went really hard at it with the same passion that I tried to, to drink uh, or chase models around the world. Um, maybe I could actually, you know, if my intention was to end needless suffering uh, with a very specific issue, I could make an impact. So that's kind of that starting moment. I was 30. I was in Soho, New York City. I was living on a closet floor at the time uh, because it was free rent. It was a walk-in closet that somebody had given me. And I, right. I filed for the charity water paperwork, the 501c3, with that mission, bring clean water to everybody on earth. Did you have any experience at that point? No, no. And, and that actually worked for me. <laughs> Now, again, you know, retrospect or hindsight's twenty twenty, but the naivety worked for me, Simon, because I was 30. I thought that I could actually bring clean water to a billion people. And I didn't know how a traditional uh, fundamental charity maybe was supposed to run uh, an international NGO. So I, I had nightclub experience and I had experience as a photojournalist. Uh, running around with doctors, saving saving lives in West Africa. And then when I came back, my friends worked at MTV or VH1. They worked at Chase Bank uh, or right. Sephora. So I realized that people my age, 30-year-olds in New York City, were actually pretty cynical and skeptical 
when it came to charity. And, and they didn't trust the big charities. And they probably thought they probably thought that you were sort of you've had this transformative experience. You're getting a bit preachy, and they probably how did they respond to you at that time? Well, it was interesting. So when I went to West Africa, I had fifteen thousand emails on my club list that I built up over a decade. So these are people that I'd partied with for ten years. And when I first began to to tell them of my personal transformation and 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 share stories and photos and videos, you know, of course there were a few unsubscribes. As people said, you know, I signed up for the Prada party, not <laughs> right. stories about leprosy, you know. Right. But most people said, this is amazing. I want this in my life. Uh, you seem to have found purpose. You seem to have found a calling. How do I volunteer? How do I, at the very least, give money to support the doctors you're embedded with? And, you know, back then on my email list, you know, email open rates were close to 100%. Right. So I would write something and people would read it. Or I would send photos out and people would open those photos. So I was really encouraged by that, that maybe the same gift of storytelling that I had used to get people drunk, uh, to get them to, to line up outside velvet ropes, could actually be used to call forth generosity. You know, to, to motivate shifts in thinking and behavior, the same tool is at our disposal, whether we put it to good use or to poor use. And that is the power of storytelling. And you've probably done it better than any nonprofit out there. So how did you share this, you know, this shocking story, this, this story that came out of such a sort of dissonant world to the world that your friends in New York are in? How did you get them on board to start to build a foundation? Yeah, I love that question. Visually. So if you go back to those first couple months, you know, living on the closet floor, what I had in my hand was 50,000 photos I'd taken with a Nikon D1X digital camera. Uh, and I had the stories of the people that I'd met. I had pictures of children drinking brown, viscous, muddy water, water that you wouldn't let an animal drink. Uh, I had pictures of children throwing up over themselves as they were sick with, with waterborne diseases. I also had pictures of people drilling wells and providing clean water to communities in need. So I went back into the clubs at first because it's it's the only place I knew where to go. And I rem I mean, Simon, I remember getting kicked out of DJ booths at two in the morning. You know, here I am sober in a DJ booth. I'm opening up my MacBook and I'm trying to show, you know, a, a famous DJ pictures of dirty water or of, of doctors. You would have been the least ideal guest at that moment imaginable. You would have been like just the cancer it, in the body. It was of the like, dude, you're killing imagine. my buzz. Like, I'll give I money. Know. I'll give dude, money. You're killing everybody's buzz. Get out of, get him out of here. Yeah. But that was it. That was the, the, the how was 15 one-on-one -on -one presentations a day. Here's my experience. Here's the need. Here's a solution. I'm starting an organization to be a part of that solution. Will you give money? And nine would say no. And one would say yes. And then eight would say no. And two would say yes. Give us the gift of your experience there, because here we are so many years later, but the challenge is the same. You've got a lot of people on an individual basis who are being given all these ways to participate in change, whether it's donations, volunteering, buying a certain product, but they have a healthy self-interest. It's not top of mind. What, what was the secret source or magic bullet when you, when you did this trial and error over and over again? What got people that unlock in them? What did you do? I think there was a lot of passion at the time. I was so fired up. I mean, I was overflowing with 
uh, animation or enthusiasm or or passion for <laughs> quite honestly an issue they'd never even contemplated before. I mean, Simon, I used to sell Voss water in our clubs for $10 a bottle and people would come in and they would order 20 bottles to just sit there and drink champagne or vodka instead. But just in case anybody happened to be thirsty, we have $200 worth of water. So I, I think this was just so, you know, purple cowish to, to quote Seth Godin. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the drunken nightclub promoter comes back, you know, showing pictures from the other side of the world and then asking for help. And he's so passionate. He's been changed. And uh, I, I didn't smoke anymore. I mean, I wasn't fun to hang out with. I wasn't snorting lines of coke. I, right. I, I, and, but I also wasn't, I wasn't judgmental. And I think that's, that's one of the problems sometimes with, with people in charity is that they then expect everybody to conform to their own new worldview. So, you know, even though I had been transformed in the most uh, deep way, I didn't expect other people to be. Uh, I tried to really meet them where they were at and just tell good stories and invite them to participate in this thing that I was passionate about that would lead to the flourishing of humans, that would lead to the end of needless suffering for people thousands of miles away that, that maybe they would never meet. But, you know, I think there was the, the power at the moment was there was a proximity. You know, I hadn't gone to Africa on a mission trip for a week to paint the orphanage the seventh color it had been painted that year, you know, by some volunteer group. And I'd lived there for two years. There was an eyewitness account. These were my photos. You know, I would, I would open up a laptop at midnight and I'd say, when I met this girl, Hawa, this is how I felt. I had never seen anything. And this is what she said through a translator. And I, I like you, I mean, I'd never even experienced anything like that before. I hope, you know, everyone listening to this is recognizing that what Scott is sharing right now is a masterclass in effective storytelling. It's almost second nature instinctive to you, Scott. But the fact that you said, meet them where they are. And then secondly, share stories, not just stories, stories shared in a personal context that really brings your own personal humanity to those stories. These are the building blocks of effective engagement that, you know, it's like the air you breathe now, Scott, but it's an absolute masterclass in effective storytelling. So, so thank you for sharing this and, and, and continue. So what happened? Like what happened as you did this at what you took to scale or? Well, so the first idea was to maybe parlay that naivety into a different business model. And I said, well, you know, if my friends are cynical about giving to charity, why? And what might win them over? And I realized that almost all the problems were around money. How much of my money is actually going to reach those people in need? How much is actually going to get to go build a well? I mean, how much can be taken by, you know, greedy middlemen or bureaucrats or, you know, the nice offices that the charity undoubtedly Healthy has. cynicism. And still today, that's a big issue. Sure. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, I remember coming across a study in USA Today that found 42% of Americans just said they didn't trust charities. Uh, more recently, NYU Wagner did a study found 70% of people said they believed charities wasted their donations. Right. Now imagine that seven out of 10 people giving money to a charity actually believed, you know, no good would come of it or, or certainly some ill, some waste would come of that. So to combat that, you know, I had this very simple idea. What if I could promise the public that in every case, without exception, 100% of whatever they gave would go directly to provide clean water to people in need. 
100% would go directly to fund uh, a variety of, of water technologies and solutions with the end goal of getting clean water to people in need. And then in a separate bank account that I actually opened with, with a different uh, set of numbers, that would be the overhead account. And I would go and find a different small group of visionary people to pay for the disgusting, unsexy overhead, the Epson copy machine lease, the salaries, the flights, the insurance, the office, uh, all of that, the, the office furniture, that would be covered by a small group of visionary philanthropists or entrepreneurs so that without exception, 100% of the public money could go. And this is all about transparency and accountability at a time when others weren't leading with that. So you built the model around that in the first place. That's right. But we almost stumbled into some of this stuff, Simon. I mean, you know, we weren't that smart or I wasn't that smart at the time and I wasn't thinking kind of forward 10 years or, uh, you know, the, the term, term social entrepreneur wasn't even invented back then. Right. Um, I, I think then you said, all right, well, we have two separate bank accounts. Oh, my gosh. We could actually do cool things with the public's money, like tell them where it went and tell them <laughs> what it did and we could track it. So if you gave $100, well, we weren't using it to pay for salaries or office. All $100 was going to Malawi or to Rajasthan, India, or to Cambodia, so we could track where the $100 landed and even what village it landed. So we, we began then just to kind of stumble into the idea that we could use technology, uh, stuff like Google Earth or Google Maps. We could geolocate every charity water project. We could make that data public so that Anybody in the world could just go look at the satellite images of the water projects as they were built. And then we could give that back to a donor and say, here, specifically, this location, this photo, these people, this is where your money went. These are the people that it helped. It seems so self-evident today, but that was light years ahead of anyone else. To help other entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, foundation leads understand this, was it just instinctive that allowed you to do that? How did you start to think that way? Or was it just obvious to you? These are just obvious gaps. What would I want as a donor? You know, if I give $10,000 to a charity or, or $100 to a charity, you know, I, I'm not going to pick on any of the big ones, but 99% of the case, you have no idea where the money went. Exactly. You know, and, and, and what's later come out is that the thing that they're marketing, you know, text here for this disaster is actually not where the money went. At all. So I, I think it's just a simple, you know, if you put yourself, and this is how so many companies were started, you know, whether it's Uber or Airbnb, you know, someone just saying, like, I'm trying to solve a problem. I just said, well, what would my, what would be a good giving experience for my, look, here's the thing. If you go out to a club and you have a really good night and, you know, you, you, <laughs> Uh, you, you you go back, right? Because you had a really good night. Right. And you tell so people about it. You tell people. You tell about people it. about it. Oh my gosh, the DJ was amazing. Oh, the, right. you know, there were cute boys or cute girls or the drinks were incredible. The the venue, the, whatever it was, right? You, you tell people about it. You want to go back. With giving, you know, often it's like, it stops with a receipt. You write a check to a charity and they say, here's your tax receipt. Or even worse, they just ask you to keep giving money. But that experience isn't there. That, that proof loop, that closing the loop. And so I really wanted early on people to get addicted to generosity, maybe in the same way that they were addicted to debauchery or that I had, that I had enticed them to a decade of debauchery. Could I entice people into compassion, 
generosity. Uh, you know, could could I share what had transformed my life with others focused on the most inarguable good, right? Clean water for humans. And if we got the business model right, if we got the money flow right, the systems of transparency and integrity at the core of the organization, then this thing could scale. I mean, I was thinking... I was thinking billions in the beginning. I was thinking everybody with clean water, not, you know, let me dig five wells or 10 wells. And let me ask you this. I mean, what's so powerful about what you're saying is you're you're talking about the dynamics to tap into the humanity of everyone and on the strength of that humanity, scale your impact. And what you're sharing is that you've got to complete that last mile of the story journey where you allow people to see the impact that was created. And that then gives them, in the best sense, bragging rights because they can say, hey, these are the people that my donation affected and they can they know that it actually had a real and tangible effect. Did you see, what, what sort of response did you see from those donors that were given this accountability, this transparency through GPS systems or otherwise? Was it was it night and day in terms of, you know, them being engaged and donating more and promoting it to others? Yeah, I mean, there was some virality for sure. But I think what we found was it was really in the best ways. It was almost out of joy of a good experience. It was almost out of surprise that something actually happened with my money. It wasn't, hey, look at me, I'm so generous. I gave $100 to Charity Water and here's my well. It, it felt a lot better than that. It, it felt like, well, I gave $100 to Charity Water and something actually happened. Like I got a picture, you know, I got a report of where my money went. And it was it was just a, a very natural enthusiasm, uh, a word of mouth, you know, many word of mouth movements started. And, you know, the organization began to grow very quickly. I mean, we did 2 million in our first year, 6 million, 9 million, 16 million, 23 million, 28 million, 35 million, 45 million, it just kept growing every single year as more and more people signed up for clean water. What always struck me was that there was different storytelling strategies that kind of refreshed engagement with the brand. So I remember when you were do, asking people to, you know, make donations in lieu of birthday gifts. And then, then there was a book where you could make, you know, donations, $10 donations on someone else's behalf. And this had its, you know, carry forward or pass it on structure to it. How did you approach that? Because I think that that really has been responsible for so much of your growth and so much goodwill around the brand. How do you think of the next expression of the same issue? I think we're curious and we hire curious people. I think we get bored easily. So we don't want to do the same thing forever, even if that same thing is working. And, you know, we are looking at, you know, innovation is a core value at the organization. I think some of it is what we're reading. We weren't reading the philanthropy trade journals. We were reading Wired and Fast Company. Uh, We were, (laughs) we were interested in augmented reality and virtual reality, you know, and other charities were saying, we'll make sure this gets adopted first because we never want to be first. What if the thing doesn't work? And we're like, we want to be first. We want to experiment. We want to try it. We want to be a part of cutting edge technology. I mean, I, I remember speaking at Twitter when uh, I think there were 45 full-time employees in the entire company. You know, we were the first charity to get a million Twitter followers. We're just trying to uh, jump early on in the dawn of social media. We were the first charity to use Instagram. 
and and I think we just whatever was new. Now we also have at Charity Water accounts on twenty social medias that folded, twenty social media companies that you've never heard of that didn't make it. But we were always there on day one, just in case, uh, trying it out, not 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 needing something to be fully adopted before we were willing to experiment or or try that out. And, and, and you know, let's just use VR for, for an example, because it actually has not gone as mainstream as people thought. But I think it was five years ago, Simon, we got eight GoPros donated. Uh, we asked Chris Milk in LA to make us a virtual reality camera rig with those eight GoPros. You know, and we're talking like electrical tape, okay, and a tripod. And we went to Ethiopia and we shot an extraordinary eight-minute film of a 13-year-old girl getting clean water for the first time in her life. And it shot over six actual days. And on day one, when you put the headset on, you are in her village and you're watching her drink water with donkeys and cows from a swamp not far from her house. You know, on day two, uh, you learn about the coming of the drilling rig. And on day three, you see the rig looking for water. On day four, uh, there's this amazing moment when her father lifts her up as the rig is drilling and he starts dancing with her. And he starts spinning around, knowing that it's working. And on day five, the rig finds clean water and they start building the well. And then on the last day, you watch 13-year-old Salam, uh, whose name means peace, walk up to the well and drink clean water for the first time in her life. And this all happens over eight minutes and it happened in real time to a real girl in a real village in Ethiopia. And I think what was so interesting to us was just the medium was interesting. I mean, there was, there was a moment in time where people were going to put away their phone and let us strap a movie set to their face and we could have them. We could intravenously deliver redemptive storytelling content that would move them, hopefully, to give. And it's so interesting because you're marrying timeless humanity inside people with the latest timely technology. And so it sounds like there's an innovation mindset inside Charity Water. You get out ahead of where trends are going. You you really invest in technology and, and sort of the latest trends in the for-profit world as well as nonprofit. And then you leverage that to tap back into the storytelling that moves people. Yeah. Yeah. Although we don't think about it probably as, as articulate as that. But let me ask you this then. The big moment for any brand then is when you've captured somebody, you know, when you have their, their heart in your hand in a sense, how do you convert that to a donation? The same way any for-profit brand is trying to, you know, convert to a sale that makes a contribution as a percentage of the sales price or whatever it might be, or in your case, you know, a donation. How do you manage that language? Because everyone is tired of being sold to. They're overwhelmed by all the bad news. They, they distrust institutions. How do you approach that sort of call to action? I think winsomely. You know, that, that's a word I really like. Uh, it, it's, it's an invitation. So it's not guilt and shame, which has plagued fundraising for so long. And it is, it is kind of a, will you join us? Not, you need to give. I saw that car you bought. I saw that. I saw what you spent on that bottle of wine. You're not giving? I mean, I will say I've been in places, I've, I've been in, in homes with nine Lamborghinis where the donor's giving, you know, half the price of a car, uh, a tenth of the price of one of those cars. And it, it would be easy to judge and say, how dare you write a $10,000 check when you have two and a half million dollars of cars in the driveway? 
But I would look at that as, you know, a little bit of treasure was transferred. How could I create an amazing, inspiring experience around that $10,000 gift? You look at these relationships authentically, right? Not transactionally. So I'm not going into all of these meetings saying, I've got to get 300 grand at the end of this. I've got to get 500 grand. It's much more organic than that. And, and this is where I think my personal background has helped. So often people come to this with a chip on their shoulders and, and donors can feel that. With that in mind, I mean, obviously everyone, especially foundations, nonprofits, NGOs have taken a huge hit with COVID because people have really been without the resources that are usually the lifeblood of those organizations. They've all been trying to kind of take care of themselves in these incredibly tough times. I mean, it's obviously, has it had a hard effect on charity water? How have you been affected? We're, we're unfortunately no different. What I will say has been encouraging is everyday people, $40 donations, $100 donations, this new community that we're so passionate about called The Spring. Uh, the, the Spring is Charity Water's version of Netflix or Spotify or, or HBO. It's a group of people from 113 countries showing up for clean water every month, giving what they can. So that has actually grown through the pandemic. You know, it, it, Simon, it costs only $40 to get a human being clean water. So, you know, imagine doing that every single month. And at the end of the year, 12 people have clean drinking water because you showed up. Scott, thank you for the insights. Thank you for the, the journey that you've run. But also, I want to send my appreciation to everybody who's shown up to support Charity Water through the Spring um, platform during these difficult times and anyone listening who can go to spring.com and support them even more would be fantastic. And, you know, we wish nothing more than continued success and growth, especially at this difficult time. And, and Scott, thanks for sharing part of the journey. Of course. It's, uh, it's, it's always an honor to talk to you and I'm a big fan of, of you and your work and, and just who you are as a, as a person. So thanks for, for having me back. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke with Scott Harrison, the founder and CEO of Charity Water, the largest water charity in America, who shared with us how to craft storytelling that engages humanity and technology to capture people's attention, and how to sustain that community to scale your impact over time. And then finally, how to enrich lives through simple impact strategies that also drive the growth of your organization. Be sure to subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and please do recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can build purposeful and profitable businesses. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, check out wefirstbranding.com, where we have lots of free resources and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead With We.